Welcome to Self-Directed. We are your hosts, Cecilia and Jesper Conrad. And now it's time to welcome this week's guest. All right. We're here today with uh, Pat Ferenga, whom we first um, noticed on the scene, or Cecilia did earlier than I, but we read about um, the whole unschooling movement and John Hald and the growing without schooling. And uh, then you, Patrick, did an interview with us some uh, five years ago, I, I believe. And uh, since then, we have become friends and have yet to see each other in real life. <laughs> I know, isn't that interesting? It's all been through the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yet I feel like I've traveled with you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've talked a lot over the years, but uh, yeah. yeah. I actually don't even know if you have legs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my my secret is out. <laughs> I, <don't. laughs> I think, yeah, I think we do because when you got that new webcam, uh-huh. Remember you had like it was a lot of work to get it oh to work. yeah and you were really annoyed with it and you had to walk to the other uh, side of the room to oh I so you did see i had yes but 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 uh pat we know a lot about you but people listening in to our podcast maybe haven't heard about you or like they it ring a bell so if you can Yeah, give your story on how you came into the whole growing without schooling and got interested in world schooling, or in not world schooling, unschooling and all that. I know it will be a long talk, but... That will be the hour. That will be the hour. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll try to keep it brief so we can have more questions. Um, yeah. yeah, I got started uh, in 1981 uh, with John Holton in Growing Without Schooling. John had started the magazine in 1977. It had been published then for four years, and um, it grew out of his frustration trying to change school. Um, he uh, His first couple of books were bestsellers, How Children Fail and How Children Learn. And it got to the point that he, he was he taught a, a graduate course at Harvard in education. I think it was in 68. Like was, this was in the late 60s when, when his first book came out in 64, the next one I think in 67. And so he even got invited to speak to Congress about, because back then, like, there were all these, um, not revolts, what's the word of it, protests against the Vietnam War and um, all, all sorts of stuff that were going on, you know, student rebellions were, were happening. And um, John was one of the first people to uh, of note to take the student's side in a lot of these, these issues. Yeah. Um, and... Um, That was one of the things that confounded. It's, it's funny. I, a friend of mine actually got a hold of the uh, um, the transcripts of John's uh, talk with Congress. Someday I hope they get it. But basically, you know, what he said is they didn't understand a word he kept saying because John kept referring to, you know, individual children and how children learn individually, and they just wanted to know how we could like pull a lever and make everything work throughout the whole system. <laughs> yeah. you know? How do we write a law that works for everybody? Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, completely missing the point of individualizing education and the need for it. You know, it was, you know, they, they don't see the need for it because they're running big institutions, big schools, and they've only gotten bigger since then. You know, we've lost neighborhood schools and uh, like crazy here in America. In fact, a lot of the, the buildings have been, turned into stores or movie theaters and stuff um, and, and abandoned, you know, uh, we have but, these huge magnet schools now, they call them. 
Pat, but how did you end up working together? Well, here's how I wound up working. I um, was uh, a graduate student in English. I got my master's in English literature. And I thought I, um, I, I'm originally from uh, New York. Um, so when I finished graduate school, I went I'm there to work. And with my wonderful new master's degree in English, I became a, a, a store clerk in a department store. <laughs> I did that for about six months. And the whole time I was traveling to Boston to be with my girlfriend, who became my wife, Day. And, you know, I finally said, you know, I could work in a department store in Boston just as easily and save a lot of travel. So that's how I wound up coming back here to be near my girlfriend. And I wound up working in a bookstore. But fortunately for me, that bookstore was in, uh, near where John Holt, uh, his office was. He had an office on the suite on the third floor of his building. But on the ground floor next door to it was a, a bookstore called the Paperback Booksmith. And the one in uh, the one in downtown Boston was very big and, and popular. And John was a frequent uh, customer there. And so uh, I was working at another branch that he had opened just literally like the next street up. Uh, it's called Booksmith, yeah. another edition. And that was uh, where, where they sold what they call remainder books, you know, hardcover books that, you know, were at an incredibly discounted price. Um, but John's, uh, it turned out that one of the cashiers who worked at the remainder store where I, I became assistant manager just because I had this degree that made me assistant manager. <laughs> Even though I, I had never worked in a bookstore before. <laughs> so, I patronized them. so, you know, um, there I am in the bookstore and the cashier uh, there, her husband, uh, was working as a volunteer at Holt Associates uh, with growing, you know, helping to publish Growing Without Schooling magazine and, and help John do his work. And I, I mean, like anyone back in 1981, you heard the word homeschooling, you're like, what's that? <laughs> you know? I, like, I don't know. So I didn't write immediately um, warm up to this idea. But after working in the bookstore for a while, and especially when, when the owner did this, we had so many people coming in. This was a recession. This is the 1980s, you know, 1981. So many people my age would be coming in off the street looking for work as cashiers and stuff. And they saw that we're a new store and open. So the owner put up a sign that said, um, you need a college degree to apply, something like that. And I'm thinking to myself, to do this, to do what I've got, a master's degree. <laughs> and they're telling me I need, I need to do this. This is, you know. That, that really started to bother me. But then I realized now in hindsight, that was a way to prevent um, certain people from applying. You know, I mean, back then I was just thinking, you know, college, you know, we don't need it. But now I realize, no, he's actually using the college degree as a way to prevent non-college people from, from working a cash register yeah. <laughs> you know, and stocking shelves, you know, and oh. talking about books. I mean, you know, the assumption was if you're a college graduate, you're going to read all these books, but outside of a few of the, my colleagues at that store, most of them didn't read a lot of books and most of them couldn't care less. It was just the job, you know, and uh, they couldn't wait to go do what they wanted to do after work. You know, they wouldn't talk about the, the latest novels or, you know, what, what was happening. So, you know, I, I, it was sort of a, a wake up call and I decided, you know, I don't want to do this. I, I can't, I can't, this book business is not, not what I like, but I still like books. So um, Cindy was her name, the cashier, and she said, well, if you want to volunteer at Holt Associates, you could pack books there. They have a mail order book business. And um, you, you, do, you also do a lot of typing and, and you can learn word processing. 
which back then was a skill unto itself. It was a whole machine <laughs> by itself. It's not like today, you know, where you have word processors built into your phone. <laughs> you know? So um, John Holt had an Olivetti word processor. And Boston at the time was completely inundated with Wang word processors. In fact, uh, the Wang company was, you know, the, the, it used to be called the Wang Opera House. They donated. That's, you know, how the mighty have fallen, right? No one remembers <laughs> Anne Wang and <laughs> word processors and yeah. stuff. But yeah, you know, the late 70s to the mid to the late 80s, that was a real big deal. So I, I went there to, to learn these skills. And John was not there. John was doing a tour of Scandinavia. He had been invited by the University of Gothenburg, I think you pronounce it, in Sweden to speak. And then um, uh, friends of his, um, Rasmus Hansen, I think was his name, uh, from Denmark. Um, you know, John spoke around Sweden, Norway, and Denmark over a three-month period. You know, And so he was, you know, that was because Ticheron had just come out and, and it was just considered so crazy. You know, that, um, you know, he was getting a lot of speaking engagements you know, to talk about it. And uh, so when John finally came back, I, you know, because I was still working, I wasn't getting paid to work at Holt Associates at that time. So I was working in the evenings, volunteering, and because uh, I was still working at the bookstore during the day. And one night, there was John Holt. He had come back from Scandinavia, and, and as was, you know, he was a single man, uh, and he often liked to read books in, in the office, you know, because, and he would read like, I don't know, three or four books a day sometimes. It was amazing how quickly and thoroughly you get through stuff. And so when he saw me there, we introduced himself, we talked, and uh, we, we immediately hit it off because, you know, I, I learned that he was from, he was born and raised in Manhattan um, in New York, and he loved jazz. And so the two of us just, you know, because I'm from the Bronx and, and I like jazz. And um, in fact, that was something I was, I was actually studying at the time. I was taking lessons um, and jazz piano. Um, so I was really, really into this. And, and, we, and we really hit it off. And finally, one night, one, one time, it may have even been the first time, I think it, it was actually, John asked me, well, what do you want to do with your life, Pat? And right out of the blue, I want to be a teacher. And he looked Ooh. at me and said, why? <laughs> <laughs> I said, because I like working with children. And I could see him doing this right now. He took his glasses off, leaned yeah. into me and said, Pat, you realize if you become a teacher, you're not going to work with children. You're going to work on children. Um, and I was just like, what? <laughs> that's, yeah. what that's what teaching is like. That's not what it's about. Oh. And said, have you ever read any of my books? I said, no, <laughs> it's true. I, <laughs> I was just up there to learn word processing, you know? <laughs> and so he recommended that I, I read any one of them and then I'd be happy to talk. But he's not going to, yeah, you just spent three months talking about this stuff in Europe. He's not going to start from scratch with me. He said, if you're interested, read a book and we'll talk about it. And, that, and then he recommended Ivan Illich's Deschooling Society to me. He said, that's also, you know, that, that would be something else. But he says, you know, you know if, unless you have this foundation, I'm, you know, I'm not going to, you know, spend my time right I'm going to spend time with you. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, I have to talk about jazz and other things, you know. But, uh, like, you know, <laughs> because it, it's still true. Here it is in 2023, you know. And I said, well, what about socialization? How are you, right? It's just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, we have so many, you know, three generations. Before I was um, coming on the call, I was uh, trying to set up um, a, a Facebook Live event for this coming Sunday about unschooling neurodivergent, uh, neurodiverse children. 
And yeah. so I remembered that, you know, I had an issue. There was, there was a couple of issues, but there was one that was a cover story about unschooling children with special needs. And that was from 1996. And, you know, to think that, you know, here we are today, like still like saying to ourselves, Will unschool children be, uh, uns- will they get into college? You know, is it appropriate for special needs children? You know, it's like, I've been there, done that. And I, and now I'm, I'm 65 now. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, John, I, I kind of feel like John, like, no, nah, I don't want to talk to you about, you know, about those things. I mean, you could readily find that information out, right? Especially now that we have the internet. Back then it was very, I mean, you'd have to go to like a library and find out something, you know, now it's, it's so much easier. So, yeah, I thought he was kind of crazy, but um, at the same time, I, I took him up on his challenge. So I, I, the book Teach Your Own had just arrived. Literally, that was one of my first jobs, was to open the cartons and put the hardcover editions. It hadn't come out in paperback yet and yeah. put them up on the shelf, right? And so I took that book with me and I couldn't understand it. It made no, Teach Your Own made no sense to me in 1981. So I wound up um, talking to Peggy Durkee, who was John's office manager, and we worked with him for many years. Um, and she said, well, you know, John, you know, John's books just keep growing one out of the other. So, you know, why don't you read How Children Fail? That's the one that, that you know, that, that I really, you know, made me understand where he's coming from. So I did. And then I got it. Because that book I could relate to. It's about being a teacher in a classroom. Something that I wanted to do and something that as a student, I had a, some very recent experience of. So I, 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 I really identified with like him talking about the charade of learning, how like the kids pretend to know the answers and the teacher is grateful that they think they, that he thinks they know <laughs> so they can move on, you know, because yeah. he's losing half the class is this half is not getting this, you know. And so he, he really talked about these strategies and, and the issues of, of schooling. And um, it, it really it, it really hit home. And so when I started to talk to him about classroom techniques and one of the things that interested me was he was into uh, Cuisinaire rods and he really in, in How Children Fail really in How Children Learn even I think more goes on about using these manipulatives. Right. And as soon as I raised it, he was like, eh, I'm over that. It was more gimmicky than useful. And, you know, kids will learn their colors and how to count without these things. I mean, they're, they're nice to have, but I don't think that, like, if we're running a classroom, that that would be the first piece of equipment I would get. And so it turns out that he was always challenging his thoughts and his writing. And indeed, in 1983, he revised How Children Fail and How Children Learn in light of his experience with un- unschooling. And, you know, and when you read those books, what I love about him is he didn't excise any of the old text out. You know, what he did was he put a line down the left side of the old text and then the new text would be indented a bit. And he said, yeah, I thought I was a real clever teacher then when I did this, but, (laughs) and so it was, it's really refreshing to see that because, you know, especially in academics, you know, this book builds on this, this book builds on that. And, 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 you know, and everyone like, like develops this oeuvre of, 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 or a canon of of work that can't be challenged or, you know, it's just so impeccable. You're the expert that, you know, knows everything. And John was much more humble. Yeah, I realize that. Yeah, like everything, like even though he wrote it in 1964 with like complete conviction, things change. You know, he grew, people changed, the the world changed. You know, 
Um, I mean, just look what's happening now with artificial intelligence and how that's changing. I mean, there was an article in the New York Times uh, saying that, you know, the high school reports are, are doomed, <laughs> you know, and no one will know if it's a student or a computer writing it now. You know, I mean, so, you know, there, there have been all these changes, but I'm not see- but school hasn't adapted. You know, I mean, we still, you know, in, our, in the United States, you know, it is different in Scandinavia and, and uh, Denmark in particular. But I had to go into your personal story again because uh, that part I haven't actually heard. Uh, I, I'm curious. Sure. So, being a volunteer to ending up now, uh, oh, if I could count, many many years later, mm-hmm. uh, having it, it turned into a profession and a career. So, yeah. so at some point, uh, you must have gotten paid for instead of volunteering. Right. So, how did it develop yeah. and, and what? Yeah, keep you sure. you keep on. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Cecilia. We're interrupting our own podcast just to make sure that you know that I am available if you want to talk to someone who has lived the unschooling life, who has traveled the world, who has beat cancer, who has been the mother of four amazing children. Luckily, I still am the mother of four amazing children. I know about life when it's hard. I know about life when it's complicated. I know what you need is probably most of all someone who will understand the special world that you are in as an unschooling parent. Even with your trauma and your personal history getting in the way, what I do really is to be a loving support, a rock And I do it on the base that I am a trained psychologist. I have worked with a lot of people with a lot of different situations. I am so ready to be your support, the one that you need to get some confidence and be strong in your journey as an unschooling parent. So don't hold back. I give a 20-minute conversation for free. You can talk to me on the phone or in a video call. And just see if it's a match. If you want to connect, you can find me on social media or find me on my website, ceciliaconrad.com. If you're a Danish speaker, I have a Danish website, ceciliaconrad.dk. And we can find those 20 minutes and see how it goes from there. And now back to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, so so what happened was that, you know... Um, Tim, uh, the gentleman that that was volunteering at, at Holt Associates, decided to leave. He actually became, if you can believe this, a typewriter salesman because it was right at that that juncture where typewriters were still being sold and computers and were just coming in, you know. So he left to do that, and so I took um, his part time job, and so I was able to still work in the bookstore during the day, but now get paid to pack books and type up John's letters in the evening, you know. And I did that for a while, um, and then. Peggy Durkee, his office manager, um, the, the recession was finally starting to, to end you know, around 1981. And I think it was um, 82. Yeah, I, I don't think it was more than a year that I've been there. And uh, she got a, a, a better job offer, you know, uh, you know, worked for an accounting company. And so, um, you know, John, you know, she and John asked if I'd be interested in becoming office manager. And um, actually, I take that back. Before I did that, I, there was one other step. Growing without schooling, 
was it was always a marginal publication financially. It was always funded by either the, the sales of our books through the catalog or from John's speaking engagements and personal income. So, yeah. you know, it, it was always kind of dicey. And so we decided one of the ways to raise money was uh, to take ads in, in Growing Without Schooling. So they made me ad manager. And I was able to bring some ads in and, and stuff like that. So I think that was another reason why they felt I, I was qualified to be office manager because, you know, I, I was doing that outreach, you know, and yep. having some success. Although back then, even then, when I look at the ads, you know, they're, they're like business card size and they're all text and stuff. But that's the way it was. <laughs> you know? That's the way it was back then. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I wound up becoming the office manager and um, John and I, I'm, we shared the office. You know, I mean, he had, we had separate offices, but you know, he liked to sit and read, you know, in, in near me and, you know, it made him accessible to me and we talk about what he was reading or what I was doing. And so we really became close and really got to, to know each other um you know very well and I, I was still a single guy at the time and my wife was working for the national organization for women because uh they were trying to get uh equal rights uh, the for women on ballot uh in the states which by the way we still don't have it hasn't passed in all 50 states did pass in massachusetts though so um you know so so she was very skeptical about homeschooling you know, and as were most of my friends, of course, you know, oh, it's just a trap to keep women pregnant and at home. And I was like, yeah. well, I don't see it that way because I was meeting families and realized like there were two income families. Sometimes the dad would be the stay at home person because the mom had a better job and could you know make things happen. So I, I knew that they, they were there, but there were still like the exceptions to the rule. It really wasn't uh, until let's see, we got married, I, I forget, 84, 85. And John was at her wedding. And um, we were, you know, it's so funny. Uh, everybody, everybody was noticing different things, right? In, in, about, about our service and, you know, memories and stuff. And what I remember afterwards, like after we came back from a honeymoon, which we took to, in Denmark, <laughs> we went to Copenhagen and then traveled to, to um, Oslo and flew, flew home from there. Um, we, um, oh gosh, I just lost my train of thought. It was... People's different memories. Yeah. So John, John, uh, so, you know, my wife and I remember or the family, the, the service. What John remembered was at the, at, at the, at the church, he noticed that the altar boys were wearing sneakers. And he was way back in the audience. I was right next to them. I didn't notice, but <laughs> it's funny what pe different people pick up on, you know? So, uh, so yeah, you know, so, so we, we went way back and then it got, you know, it, it's been, I, I think about this a lot now because I've, I've gone through so much, uh, a lot of people have died in my family the last few years and, and just this yeah. past week, uh, no, last week, last Sunday, my, uh, our dog died. I know you lost a dog when we were talking yeah. down in Spain and yeah, my daughter raised this, this guy since he was six weeks old and we yeah, all yeah, loved yeah. him. You know, he was, you know, member, definitely a family member, you know, so, so that, yeah, that was yeah, cool. really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. But when um, John Holt got sick, that was the first time that I had to, uh, to really face, like as an adult, helping another adult deal with death, you know, and that was quite, quite an experience. I was 26, 25 or 26 at the time, 
you know, so I'm not, not very, very well versed in these things, even though I grew up in a family of funeral directors, but I only knew how to handle things in the chapel. <laughs> I didn't know how to handle things in a sick bed in a people's homes. <laughs> so uh, that was quite, quite a learning thing. And it took a, a long time. Um, John tried all sorts of alternative therapies and I was always setting him up like he went to Mexico, tried this thing called the Hoxie treatment. Um, then he did, um, oh gosh, what was it called? It was with chlorophyll, um, wheatgrass, wheatgrass therapy. So we, we would get like all the tons of wheatgrass shipped in once a week, you know, through FedEx and he would juice it all up. Yeah, and we did that. And then he went to Ohio to have like some laser, you know, because it was a, a huge tumor on his leg. Um, and so he thought that we could get excised with this. And it just kept getting worse. And um, eventually his friend Roloyd was also his editor for many years, uh, had recommended a doctor uh, in uh, Connecticut. Yeah, but by, yeah, and he trusted her and he trusted this doctor. So he finally had the procedure done. And I, I should say why he didn't trust the doctors before this, because several years earlier, he had noticed this lump on his leg. The doctor said, we should probably remove it. You know, um, it, you know, it, it, and so he goes in the hospital to have it removed. And the day of the surgery, they marked the wrong leg. You know? oh, no. and, and John told them, no, it's this leg. Because when I knew it, it was like the size of my fist. But when he had it then, he said it was, it was just like a pimple. It was small, you know. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and, and he got in an argument with the, the nurse, you know, saying you got the wrong leg and he walked out. <laughs> Just walked out. That's it. And it kind of ignored it until it got so big that he couldn't, you know, wear pants. You know, had to wear shorts. You know, it was, it was crazy. In fact, it got so big he couldn't even wear shorts at one point. You know, we had to, you know, we were looking for kilts. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty bad by the time he did it. So he went and he had finally had it removed, but the doctor told him, you know, I'm not sure we got it all. I mean, I got that that lump, but you've had this for a while. And sure enough, like within weeks, you know, it, it had spread throughout his body. So, um, yeah. you know, so I had to take care of him and, um, you know, figure all that stuff out. You know, um, he was moving, you know, at, you know, eventually he had to go to the hospital. And then once they stabilized him at the hospital, we got him back to his house, his apartment in Beacon Hill. And, you know, he was basically we did hospice there. And that was another lovely moment in, you know, in, in my life was when I was looking for help because, you know, I just got married. We didn't have kids yet, you know, and I was like, what am I supposed to do? Leave work, just go sit with John until like midnight or stuff. So we were trying to figure all this out. So we put out a call for, for helpers, you know, and some families just volunteered. In fact, a woman, flew, her name was Lila Berg. She flew in from England. She's a, a children's book author who knew John to help care for John. Yeah, so people just, just it was just beautiful. You know, just people coming out of the woodwork. Local people would, would come to do the, the evening shifts and then, you know, Lila and other people would be there during the day. You know, it was it was quite moving, you know. And um, one of the things that, that I, remember, I remember from that was 
John was always interested in the Suzuki method and, and, in, and in, see right now we're all fat, you know, it's all China, 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 maybe India now economically, but in the eighties, it was Japan, Japan's eating our lunch. They know what they're doing. They're, and so, and, but John was just always interested in Japanese culture uh, through, through music, you know, um, he, he just loved classical musicians in the Suzuki method by, you know, which emphasizes learning by ear and not introducing sight reading until later on. He, he always liked that approach because he said, that's how children learn to read. <laughs> you know, you develop your ear first, you know? So, you know, he was, he was, I'll never forget this. He was, um, oh yeah. And this was a, a cellist from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. His name was David Chickering. He was a friend of John's and he came in to care for John and he would play his cello you know, while John was just lying there in bed. And John, towards the end, would just be asleep, it seemed, for hours. And um, I was talking to the nurse, and so we had to wake him up. And when we did, it was, he, he had a temper, but it was very rare that he showed it. This was one of those times. John, John, wake up. Says, what? What? Why did you wake me up? Why did you wake me up? I was singing in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that must be quite right. I mean, the way that, yeah, (laughs) but you know, music was so so important to him, you know. And um, I'll I'll never forget when I got the phone call that you know, uh, I was at at the office, and uh, no, I was, I was at home at the time, I think. They called me and said John had passed, so I I had to go down to the apartment and then you know, get a doctor and all that stuff in there to get a death certificate and have his body removed, but. I forgot about David Chickering. So as I'm walking down to his apartment, it was a basement apartment in Beacon Hill, right near the um, the Charles River, right where the Boston Symphony Orchestra plays its summer concerts. You know, he chose that deliberately. <laughs> so he can literally just walk across the street to hear the, the, the free outdoor concerts. And um, as I'm approaching the building, I could hear a cello playing. And as, as I got closer and closer, it was just David playing you know, playing for John, it was, oh, it, was beautiful. it was just very touching and very, very appropriate, you know, and mm. um, yeah, that, that, you know, so, so, and then that, I think that was 1985. And um, after John died, I found myself with the reins and, you know, um, it was just myself and Donna Rishu who uh, became the editor of the magazine. And it was really like, um, uh, really like solid she really kept <laughs> she held a lot of things together because while I was working with, with John's stuff she was publishing the magazine she kept all the correspondence going she had it you know and, and so that was really you know really important and, and again I'm realizing you know I mean I'm, I, I've thought this many times throughout my life but I'm realizing again just as I recount this so much of this is about social connection you know I mean yep. John was a single man he didn't have any children was unlucky in love, you know. I mean, he asked people to marry him, and she said no, you know, more than oh, once. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So you know, and, and you know, so I'm familiar with, with with that part of his life. But at the same time, you know, there's so many people that that gathered around him and loved him, you know, and and so that 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 was an important lesson for me as a young man to realize. It was I, I'm used to this. I grew up in a, in a very Italian family with a, a funeral home and, you know, we all wore suits and go down to the funeral home and pay our respects over three days. And this was just like a whole nother way of, of dealing with death. 
you know, um, you know, there was no funeral, you know, it was cremated and we had a memorial service a few months later, you know, which I, I understand is common, but, you know, but for, for a non-Catholic, I mean, for a Catholic Italian growing up in the Bronx, that was, that was yet another learning experience. Like, oh, there's other ways to do dying too. <laughs> you know, you just don't <laughs> go to the that. hospital, then they declare you dead and then you go to the funeral home. <laughs> you know? So I had to, so it was another eye-opening thing for me, you know? And, and it was it really, uh, I learned so much more than just about education by, by being at Corona Without Schooling. And then um, Donna ran the magazine for a couple of years uh, and then um, so, you know, she got pregnant and wasn't sure she could continue. And so Susanna Sheffer, who John had told me, he recommended her because we knew that Donna might uh, you know, change her mind or leave at some point. But John had recommended her because she was working at a, an alternative school in Michigan called the Clonlara School, which at the time had a great home-based education program. And the founder of the school, Pat Montgomery, she was a, is, she's still around. She's a firebrand. She would, anytime any school official tried to, to question why you're homeschooling using the Clonlara curriculum, she would, on her own dime, fly down there and argue with the guys, you know, and some, and she spent a lot of time in court, you know, successfully arguing that, you know. Clonlara is still around, isn't it? Oh, it's still around, but I don't think they have a home-based education program anymore. I think they do. I think oh, I good. met an adult woman about in her early 30s who yeah nicole i'm not nicole she from... uh, chandra chandra montgomery um chandra no, no, nicole. No, no, no. this is just someone i met who had her education that way she was oh she was she's a graduate of Planwara. grew up in barcelona and she had she was never in school and there she did go. the clara she told me and yeah. that was how she like managed yeah. to grow up in Barcelona without ever being in a Spanish school. That's right. That's oh, right. And, and she's young-ish. I mean, it's it must be 10, 15 years ago since she stopped. Oh, and she yeah. said she was yeah. planning to put her children through the same program. So I think it's still around. Oh, good, but it's, good. it still has, like, curriculum and right. it's not on it's, I mean. Yeah, they focus more on the, the campus program because, you know, um, they, had, they built a beautiful school. I was there for, in fact, okay. When they honored Pat, I flew into to Michigan to uh, to help with that, you know, because Pat's retired and her daughter Chandra has uh, running, been running the school now for many years. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, anyway, go ahead. Ask me another question. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I have a question because, uh, first of all, thank you for the very touching uh, story about your, your time together with John. But what kept you going? It, it was before you even had children and you... Right have well, have uh, as you say you took over the reins yeah and have been on this for many many years what is it with homeschooling unschooling that is talks so strongly to you that you you continue stay with us we'll be right back hey just a short interruption as i have a small message about some of the things i'm working on my name is Jesper Conrad. It is my pleasure to invite you to become a less stressed dad. I know how it is to be stressed out. My wife had cancer. I have four kids and I had a long career and had to like juggle everything at the same time. And it's hard. It's sometimes hard to be a dad. It's hard to be the breadwinner if that's what you are. That's what I've been in our family where my wife have been at home with our children. And it takes its toll. And one of the things that really help is to talk with someone else about it. 
And that is why I've created the Better Dad Institute together with my good friend, Martin Cook. And at the Better Dad Institute, we have dad circles where we meet up uh, once a week and just talk about life as a dad because sharing actually is super, super healing in the process of being a dad. To just hear that someone else is working through the same problems that you are is um, very, very giving. And if you're into more like a one-on-one thing, then I would happily help you and share my experience of being a dad to four wonderful children and having a wonderful relationship with my wife and being a full-time travel dad, how I have juggling everything at the same time, having a career, and how I have learned to get those shoulders down, to, to actually be very happy in my life. Of course, the stress can like pop up, but then I have the techniques I've learned and which I would love to teach you. So reach out at the betterdadinstitute.com. And if you want to get directly in contact with me, then it's betterdadinstitute.com slash Conrad. I look forward to hearing from you and um, have fun. And now on with the podcast. It, to me, it was, it was, first of all, my, my own personal experience of school was very, I, I mean, I was successful as a student. I wasn't a genius. You know, I was a middle to the, you know, top of the middle sort of grades. But um, I, I just kept wondering, I mean, really, right up until eighth grade, is this all there is? Is, is it just read a book and take a test? Read a book and take a test, right? And I'll never forget in eighth grade, you know, we're doing all these um, um, high school, uh, try what, what high school do you want to go to sort of programs. And since it was a Catholic school, they were directing us to all these Catholic places. And I didn't want to go to Stepanak, which is where everyone was going, um, the Archbishop Stepanak High School, because I, I just felt it was more read a book and take a test. And so I wanted to look for options. And my dad said, well, look, if you want to come down, it was, we were living in um, Elmsford, New York at that time, but you know, we moved from the Bronx. But um, when I was in third grade, we moved up to uh, Westchester. And, but dad still had to work in, in the Bronx. So he said, well, look, there's a great high school in the Bronx, Fordham Prep. You, know, you can drive down with me in the morning and drive home with me after work if you want to go there. So I went to an open house there. And it just blew me away because they were introducing a thing called the Fordham prep plan, where you got to make your own schedule for the day. You checked in with a mentor twice a day. That was basically your homeroom teacher. And they, they were like organizing like once a month ahead, what they called X days, where the, uh, each department would put on a special event, like the science department put on a, a movie about a nuclear, uh, what would happen in a nuclear war. And um, stuff like that, you know, and so it was so different and so cool. I was like, I'm there. And it was on the Fordham University campus. So the, the, the high school shared like you were around like all these the college facilities. It was just a lovely it was a campus. So it was a completely different feel than going to a city high school, you know, that, that would just take a regular bus to. So instead, you know, I, I drove down with dad, dropped me off. And I take the bus to meet him at work after afterwards, and I was really, really like pleased with Fordham Prep. And and in those days, because it was it was 
it just opened my mind to like, oh, it doesn't have to be read a book and take a test. You could watch a movie. You could talk to people. You can have discussion groups. They were, you know, that was when I was first introduced to discussion groups, you know, and, uh, and, and it was really interesting. But being in the field of education, which is ultimately terribly conservative and, <laughs> you know, by the second, by the time I was a junior, there were, you know, sort of three years, they were pulling back on the program. And then mm-hmm. in my junior year, uh, or maybe it was my senior year, but one of the, no, it w- would have been my junior year because it was a senior that the senior student died of a drug overdose, right? Huh. 19, so this would have been 19, I don't know, 70, 69 right. or 70. And um, immediately the parents, you know, the, the, there was all this pressure. And of course, we're students, I don't know, but I heard from my parents and the communications they're getting it was because of a liberal nature of the school. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah of course. <laughs> that, you know, that's why he, 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 you know, he used drugs. And that's it, right? So by the end of my senior year, they were clamping down. And I think within two years, like after I got into college, no more Fordham prep plan. They didn't uh-huh. use that. They just went back to being a classic Jesuit high school, you know, following the, the essential curriculum. Mm-hmm. But I got a taste, you know? I got a taste. And I was like, that's how I like to learn, you know? It's a social activity. It's not like this, you know, read a book and take a test and then see how you did compare it to everybody else, you know? I mean, that 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 always has bothered me. It just seemed like a, an ex- a performative exercise, not uh, really, because I knew, I forgot, John, John wrote this in How Children Fail. The only difference between a good student and a bad student is the good student is very careful not to forget what they studied until after the test. Yeah. <laughs> and that just, bam, that just hit me like a ton, because that was Fordham Prep. I mean, you know, I mean, that's what it became. It's just like, you know, just, just give the answer and you're going to get a grade and everything's going to be fine. You know, it, it, you know, it was, it was not like this, this more holistic experience of, of, of like, in fact, you know, during the Fordham prep plan days, they would, on the X day, some of the departments would do travel like into the city to do stuff, you know? So I saw that, that it could be education didn't have to be like the, the way that we're doing it. Then I went to college and, you know, what can you do? College is college. You know? <laughs> no one's going to change that, you know, although it's going to happen. I don't know I think, how it is. Please educate. Well, it's not, I, I Actually, it's, you know, I'm from Europe. We don't have college. We do. I, I think you, it's obvious what it is. To me, it's not. Mm-hmm. How's college? College, college in America is a four year, a, a four year, um, uh, what's the contest to see if you can get a job once you graduate, <laughs> you know, and some people are so focused, like, you know, particularly business schools or pre-med, you know what you're going to do for those four years, right? Because, and then you're going to go to the job fairs. But if you're someone like me, a liberal arts major, an English major, you know, I mean, I was, I wasn't even aware there were job fairs on, on, on campus, you know, they didn't announce these sorts of things, you know, and so I was going to be an English teacher because that was my favorite subject and that's it. And I worked in the funeral business as a kid and you don't want to become a funeral director, you know, um, so, you know, I mean, those were my only choices, it seemed, you know, I didn't have enough experience of the world. You know, and that's another thing that, that I, I really appreciated from John and, and from, you know, growing without schooling is seeing that education does not have to just be going to school. 
It doesn't have to have school at all. And that, and that really appealed to me because after I finished graduate school, you know, which I enjoyed, but I also, I also got the feeling like there was, especially in English, it was all like my, my favorite book about theory was, I forget the author's name, but the book was called Against Theory. <laughs> because, you know, everyone has a theory about these books, but then, and then you realize it's like, they're just reading their theories into these narratives that were written 100, 200, even five years ago, or even today. You know? I mean, it, it's kind of, you know, I, I became so theoretical and, and yeah, it's like, uh, but I, I still love to read and write, you know? And John, you know, fortunately showed me that, you know, there's a lot of authors who never, who never went to school or, or you know, not even accepted in the academy, you know, but who are still worth reading and whose books are around and, you know, he turned me on to a lot of, of, you know, classic literature and stuff that was not even on the, uh, you know, there's an important book. Um, it's called How to Lie with Statistics. Teeny, teeny little book came out in the 1950s. It's still like wonderful because it's got illustrations and, and you know, but because it, it was talking about like how to avoid all the political and marketing bullshit that's going on in the world. And that was then. <laughs> it's still a very valid book. <laughs> you get that. Book. Yeah. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's why all of a sudden education became open. It was the whole world. It wasn't just school. All of a sudden education be me doing things, not me sitting there taking in stuff and memorizing, you know? And, and, and then of course I realized like the things that I like to do, I play the piano, I, I do magic. I mean, and I was doing it even back then. I mean, that's always been part of me. It's like, I learn because I move. And that, that's part of me too. I need to touch and, and you know, I, I'm a, a, a haptic learner perhaps, <laughs> you know, but that was never even mentioned. You know, I mean, never, I never thought about it. I, I learned about learning styles and um, multiple intelligences later and, you know, all these theories. And again, they're theories, you know, that I, I, I keep feeling like they're good guesses, but they, you know, but they're always used to justify making kids do what adults think they should do. <laughs> you know? yes. Instead of what John is saying, the free exploration of the world is how a child learns. It's how we all learn. You know, I mean, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to limit their explorations, you are controlling their learning. And sometimes that's appropriate, but usually it's appropriate when a student says, I would like to learn this. Well, here's how you play piano. Here's how you do a magic trick. That's when you get into the details. And if they don't have the discipline to stick with it, you're not getting, you know, you're not getting, you know, your job doesn't depend on it, you know, like, like a, a teacher's does. You know, so it, it's a shame. I think that, that, you know, the whole grading system is completely warped education, you know, and, you know, judging, judging our, in America, at least judging teachers by their students' grades. It's just, it's just crazy, you know, but that's, that's how we do it, you know. But at least that's honest. I mean, I, as I see it, all of these standardized tests that we're unfortunately getting in Europe as well now, even in Scandinavia, they they are not there to actually measure how the kids are performing, which you might right. be able to have a good, you know, reason mm -hmm. to see how is it actually going with these children. Mm -hmm. That's not the reason for these tests. It's to see how the how the teachers are doing so yeah. that the teachers 
can compete with each other and how well they're doing. And they're just making the children's lives hell because they have to read the study for these tests Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. see how good the teacher is performing instead of maybe making a good life for the children. Yeah. Yeah. I think the tests and the grading is. I'm so sorry to hear that because, you you know, in Finland, I know that they, they completely de-emphasize grades. Well, Finland is a different league. Yeah, I'm right? Afraid. I know. Yeah. But again, like, and this is what John kept saying. It's like, you know, everyone said, uh, here, here, this was, I think he even wrote this. When, in the 1950s, everyone said that no one could run a mile in a minute. And then a guy named Roger Bannister did that. He, he, he ran a, a mile in under a minute. You know, and John said, you know, throughout my high school and college, that was just like a given because he was into sports. You know, he would do yeah. weightlifting. In fact, I found like he would, he kept track of how much he was lifting every day towards the end of his life there. You know, he was really, you know, really meticulous on record keeping. So anyway, you know, um, I forgot, again, I'm, I'm wandering. <laughs> it's okay. No, so, I'm having a nice conversation. It was about Finland and the oh yeah, the, right. And, yeah, and and John was always talking about like alternative assessments, other ways to do things, you know. Um, and you know, it, it never it never gets accepted, but we have successful models, you know. And so that that that's what why to me the most important thing about homeschooling, but unschooling in particular, is that it, it's empowering us, you know. Because modern society has gotten to the point, I mean, and this is no joke anymore, right? I mean, in the 80s, it was kind of a joke. We'd say, oh, you know, they're, they're looking at, you know, the government or big business is looking at everything you do. See, you know, but now it's really true, right? Who's watching now this, it is this right now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, there's always been that, that you know, big brother uh, sort, of, sort of, you know, thing associated with um, this, and as John points out, and many, many other people besides John pointing this out, obedience to authority and, you know, and using, you know, education as a social control tool, you know, um, that's been, that's been a a real eye-opener for me, because, you know, I always thought education was for our benefit, it's like, no, it actually benefits a lot of other people and institutions besides us, and probably in bigger ways, you know, so, once I, I, I got that, uh, you know, understanding, I realized, like, one of the things that, that um, John, I thought was crazy, but now I know is not, is if he saw a mom breastfeeding, he would say, good for you. If he saw s- someone making their own meal or something, he would say, how did you do that? What do you, where did you get that? You know, oh, you do that so well, you know, and, you know. I forget one of his friends told me, yeah, John, John like acts like it's the first time he's seen, seen something all the time when he sees this stuff. And I asked him, you know, why one time, particularly about the breast. It was again, I never, my mother probably used formula, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I never saw breastfeeding until I started working at, at the Holt office, you know? And, and then I was just like, you know, John was like anything that, you know, makes us less dependent on the market or an institution is better for us because society is just going to this whole way where like, you know, we're, we're dependent on that. 
So to me, like people, I, that, that's why I, I like this bigger vision of education and, and this bigger vision of what homeschooling and unschooling is about. It's, you know, I mean, we've reduced it, like just as our religions have reduced themselves into political parties. You know, and I've seen so many, I mean, like the right wing Christians have tried to take over homeschooling and, you know, and, and everyone has, has their the libertarians want, want you to unschool because it's the, you know, the, they worship the free market. You should worship it too. You know, you, you need to study this economist or you need to be, um, you know, uh, I, I forget, like you know, indigo children is another, everyone, everyone has like, like their, their, their hobby horse of, of what works for education and therefore what everybody else should be doing. And I realized, no, you should celebrate. You, you want to you send your kids to school? Fine. That works for you? Fine. And we all know that, you know, our kids at some point will take classes, you know, and schoolers always do. It's, you know, it happens, you know, so you know, this idea that, that, you know, we're completely out of the system is just, just nonsense. But anybody who just even takes like one step away is suspect, you know, and now, and now that homeschooling is, I mean, it's only about 4% of the population now, but it was 2% before the pandemic. So, you know, and this is the American population. I don't know what it's like in Europe, but. Um, I think Peter Gray gave us a different number. Yeah, it, it, Peter said it was in America up to maybe nine at the moment. Wow! Wow! I, I don't know. I'm not yeah. in the state. Yeah. Not looking at the numbers. It's just yeah. it looked better. But even during the pandemic, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But even nine percent, you know, if you put that in perspective, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the with 64 million or children are in elementary school in America. <laughs> you know, I mean. It's still a lot. So we're still a minority. But th that minority needs to be told that it's okay to, to step out and form your own idea of what your family can do and how you, you can learn. And it's not an irrevocable decision. You know, if you want to go back into the mainstream and, and go into school, fine. You, you know, they'll welcome you. It happens all the time. You know, but everyone's always worried. Oh, you know, the, the kids are going to get left back. They're going to be I've very, very rarely seen that. I've seen schools arbitrarily make a decision, say, oh, that child, you know, was homeschooled for three years, so they, they can't get into fifth grade. They should really go to fourth. And I've seen people are successfully argue, no, <laughs> you know, they could do fifth grade work and, you know, let's see if they can. Because it's true, like if, if you move from uh, California to Massachusetts, you know, they don't, you know, they have different curriculums and, um, and, and stuff, even in the public schools, you know, different states, you know, they just put you in the same grade, see how you do, <laughs> you know, then they make a decision, you know, so you know, this idea that if you're going to homeschool your child, you know, they're going to be outcast, you know, ruining their life. I was so glad to, to get that over, you know, get over that myself, because that naturally, that was my, my first reaction too back in 1981. But now it's like, Why not? You know, especially as as like we have this, you know, I mean, you know, people like Zuckerberg just want us to wear a helmet all day and, and conduct our business in the metaverse. You know, it's just like, wait a minute. <laughs> how do we how do we balance this? And, and that's one of those things that, that I, I, I've really found Ivan Illich's work to be very helpful. Because, you know, people think like John Holton and Illich say, oh, don't go to school. Don't do anything. You know, just, just do what you want. And it's like, no, it's a balance. It's like, you know, if I want to be a doctor, 
I'm going to have to go to some school, you know, chiropractic or, or what, you know, even Reiki, right? You got to go to some, you know, take some classes and get certified. So, yeah, you know, that, that's going to happen. But at the same time, we're, we're told that we, we need more and more school. You know, to me, back in the 70s, there was a debate whether or not to go to college. You know, and that debate was settled, you know, because my parents told me, a high school degree is not worth what it used to be. You know, a high school degree is now what a college degree is worth. So you need a college. And I'm, you know, so this, this hierarchy of, 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 of value, you know, you know, education keeps depreciating it and we have to keep adding more years of schooling. <laughs> All of a sudden now it's like, you know, we, we, we put the lower age down to five or four now in a lot of states and the upper age to 18, <laughs> you know, and that's and, and then, of course, four years of college. Now you're going to be 21, 22. So, you know, we're, we're putting more and more people in this box instead of like, well, how do we get them in the world? I mean, there's still going to be a need for teachers and classes and groups to do things, but we can organize them differently than than we have have. And that that's what where where I think the big message gets lost with homeschooling and unschooling is it's like it's not every man for a woman for themselves. It's not like this completely individualized thing. I mean, you know, I mean, I love how you were talking before we started this about how your friends are coming down to stay with you in, in Sicily. They're coming from Copenhagen, right? I mean, that, that's what it's like, you know, when you're in school and you, 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 you bring people in, you know, and, and you welcome, you know, you find people who want to welcome you into their lives, you know. Um, but I think also for me, at least one shift that we have to make more than whether or not we take classes or whether or not we study certain academics, we have to shift the whole idea that only academics count. Yes. yes. As if education. So I could brag and talk about how many languages my kids speak and how many cultures they know about and how mm. much Islamic art they can produce with their hands and whatever. And everybody mm -hmm. would be very impressed. But if I talk about um, how good they are at cutting the nails of dogs and playing certain computer games or jumping mm -hmm. into an ice cold pool or <laughs> walking 20 kilometers in one day, that's not like that doesn't count. Yeah. And I think we have a job to do as unschoolers living outside this schooled um, mm, lifestyle to just question this idea that everything before the college degree, everything from birth to mm. job is about how much academics can you learn. And, mm -hmm. and this de-evaluates everything else. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's not about how balanced are you or will you make people happy when you enter a room or mm -hmm. can you find your way through maybe as you've just shared with us really hard times. I mean, your twenties were not easy years. They were very, very formative years and you had to take up a big challenge of helping a good friend through his last years. Can you manage that? I, the, uh, there are so many other things, other challenges of this life than, I mean, it's easier to learn math when you're 56 than to learn to handle life. I mean, it's kind of too late if you're 56 and you don't even mm -hmm. you know how, what to do with yourself when you get out of bed in the morning. 
And I think this whole evaluation system you shared that you like mm-hmm. to do magic tricks, mm-hmm. people don't take that seriously, even though it it, it it's yeah. a skill. It takes a lot of work to do a good magic trick and actually mm-hmm. it can change the whole feeling oh, yeah. of total situation. Everybody are a little more happy when you leave. Mm-hmm. And well, so I agree that we can do education in many different ways. But I also think that we have to consider not calling it education and right. coming to just calling it life. How do we well, want to live our life? Yeah. John wrote a book called Instead of Education, yeah. Ways to Help People Do Things Better. Hmm. Seems to me like a very simple concept. Right? Way, but it will help people, people do mind. things better, right? <laughs> not to just do things. Because yeah. when you do things, you learn things. No one likes to do things that they are very good at and just right. keep doing the same, right. same thing over and over and over. Maybe right. some do because there are so many people. Probably right. there are a few people who like to do that. Most people don't. Most mm-hmm. people like a challenge. And right. whenever there's a challenge, there's learning going on. So it's more about passion. It's more about mm-hmm. doing things we really like to do and doing them well. Yeah. If we do that, we grow. And when we grow, we learn. So and learning. Yeah, having the time. the time. I mean, school eats up so much time. Exactly. And then our work does too. You know, yeah. It's a real it, it's a real issue. And that 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 to me is what the balance thing is about. You know, it's like balancing what I want to do with my family, with myself, and what society and my and the social expectations that others have. Because I I, I do have jobs, I, I work and, and engagements, you know, with other people. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. and and finding that balance is, is is important, but it's so unbalanced right now. I mean, you you know, just while we're talking, I forgot to turn notifications off. So I'm having these little things up in the corner <laughs> of my screen, right? These constant. Not- then, like every every couple of weeks, I get notices from my my healthcare company about things I should be doing or watching out for. You know, it's like. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, there's so much noise. And then the scam calls and, and, and oh, my God, you know, face, don't get me going about the Internet and Facebook. You know, I mean, it's amazing how phony so much of this stuff is. And it's mm. getting so much worse, you know. Yeah. So we really need to find authenticity by balancing, like, you know, saying, no, I'm not going to use Facebook today or I'm not, or, or, or at least for the next three hours, <laughs> something like that. You know, for me, it's, it's like taking a break from the Internet is is a great thing. It really recharges my batteries. A uh, uh, thing I would like to to ask you is, um, you have grown children and, and they have been homeschooled, unschooled as well. We mm-hmm. are 10 years down the line with our uh, oldest who have never been to school. But if you are a... Not our oldest. Not our oldest. Our oldest. We ignore our oldest child. I'm not ignoring our oldest child. She She's a grown-up, so I don't see her as a child anymore. Our second child has never been to school. I say a second home-based child right now. Um, but I talked with Cecilia earlier this day about, hey, we were going to talk with you, and she said... Oh, I remember back when we started this and when I was like, that could be interesting to start to homeschool or unschool. But I mean, if you have a baby on the lap, there's so much stuff going on in your life. You don't maybe have the time to read uh, all the books out there. Mm-hmm. So so how to start? What, what are you, do we have any advice for people who are starting down the road? Well, I, I think that, 
one of the best things you could do is to actually meet people in person. I think it could be a real mistake going on to Facebook or you know a, a website first. I mean, that's what we do now. But I, I've talked to more more than one person who said, "Oh, I went to such and such a, a group, and they were, you know, they were just so high handed and and um, you know dismissive of, of my concerns, and you know, and so." You know, I mean, people, I mean, I, I appreciate it because I, I spent a lot of time in the 80s talking to my parents, my mother-in-law, so I mean, trying about like the value of, of homeschooling and unschooling in particular. Um, and so, you know, I, but I appreciate that. Like I said, or at the top of this, like people are still asking about socialization and if they can get into college, you know, and even though there's books and research, you know, and again, you can find that on, on the Internet if you want. But, you know, the Internet has become so poisoned, you know, it's, it's, it's really you, you really need a good Sherpa to find, you know, to find things that are worth paying attention so, to. So would you recommend go look for someone who homeschool or unschool and meet them in person rather Absolutely. than picking up a book? Yeah. And, and try to meet there you know, if you can. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and try to meet their children. I think I think that that's the thing is is like to me, you know, meeting the children of, of these families. You know, we had open houses. John, uh, the first Wednesday or the last Wednesday of a month, John would have an open house, <clears throat> and people would come down to the office to talk with John. You know, and what got me convinced that homeschooling worked was my conversations with the kids, because. None of them were, I mean, sure, there were a few that were shy and wouldn't talk to me. But by and large, they were not. They were used to talking to strangers, you know, with their parents nearby. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And and there, there were, you know, very, it, 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 it was very comfortable and, and interesting to talk to them. It wasn't just like, oh, you know, how's school? You know, they would talk about like, oh, the thing that, that we're building this, I'm on the sports team, I'm doing gymnastics, you know. It wasn't just like the you know the the, the grind, you know um, the usual discussion you have with a, a fifth grader, say coming out of school. You know, I mean that kind of blew me away. It's like yeah, you know they they're not talking about cramming for tests and you know how they hate this book and hate, hate this teacher and blah blah blah. Instead, it was was like oh yeah, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You know, I help my my mom and dad do X, Y, and Z. You know, all of a sudden it's like wow. It's like we were saying earlier. You know, I mean. Education is not schooling is not the same as education, you know. Exactly. Uh, we, we've we've completely you know screwed the term education, you know, because yeah. we forget its its origin. Um, I talk about this in, in a, a talk I, I gave on on YouTube about the the 40th anniversary edition of Teach Your Own, but uh, and and I've mentioned this more than once, but real quickly, Ivan Illich pointed out. The Latin word for root for education is the word educare, right? and that means to draw forth. And what it specifically means is to draw forth mother's milk. It's nurturing. It's referring to the act of, um, of breastfeeding, of nurturing. And then Illich pointed out that you know that's why if you look at some medieval monasteries or earlier, the abbots are shown having breasts because they're dispensing the milk of knowledge yeah. <laughs> and the milk of kindness and so on, you know? So, um, you know, 
but we've taken the idea to draw forth the opposite. It's not the baby pulling, it's the adult doing the, the pushing. <laughs> and, and, and so if we would only switch that around, you know, I mean, because that's what unschooling is about, right? Oh, you want to learn the piano? Let, let's try it. Oh, you don't like the piano? Okay. Try some oh, drums, whatever. You, no, no music? Fine. But in school, it's like, no, you got to keep playing that piano till the end of the semester, and then we'll make a decision. It's like, yeah. you know, come on. You know, the, yeah. It's about voluntary education. I mean, it's about who decides. Yeah, and who decides, yeah. Not about whether you take a class or not. It's about who decides do you take that class. And right, right. Think also Why we do took, I want to do that? We took yeah. all initiative out of the children because we decide, yeah. we the adults. And and yeah. also you said we, we started this conversation about, you know, the individual mm-hmm. versus the institution. And and with our governments, we, we give them the power to, in an institutionalized way, to decide for everyone. Mm-hmm. what they are going to do with 10 years of their life mm-hmm. even more yeah. sometimes places yeah. and so so there is no personal freedom for the children there's no voluntary education it's all right. being decided by someone else yeah. and if you flip that around and say let's do that from your 32 and 15 years onwards, someone else decides what you're going to do. No one. I, it would be, right. I mean, it would be right. riots. It'd be riots. But as yeah. we do it to the children. <laughs> we think that we, we've made this fantasy world where we have the right to do that. And we believe it's really weird that mm-hmm. it's a good thing. Right. Because yeah. it's obviously well, not. To me, right. to me well, it's think, think about it. You know, it's time. You know, it's our time. And having seen like the untimely death of dogs and family members and stuff, time is really, really important. You know, and what do we do to kids? Well, what, I don't know about you two, but I could say I went, I, I had my years of Spanish. I can't speak Spanish. I had my years of, of higher math. I could do some algebra, but that's about it. You know, I, I but I passed those courses. You know, I, I you know, I, I, I can't remember half of the world history I studied, you know, but I remember the magic. I remember the music. I remember some of the, some of the books I've read in some papers that I've written, but you know, I, I mean, was so, a very, very so much student. of the time is to wait. I'm sorry. It's, it's no, no, to no. waste people's time. It seems. Exactly. Yeah, and then you pay for it and say, Oh, here's an A you're wonderful, but you don't even remember it. You know, no. <laughs> no, I was a very good student. I had a lot of the equivalent of A's in my time. And I know when I when I scroll back my years of my mm-hmm. childhood, what I learned, I learned in my own time. Exactly. I exactly. learned to read before I started in school. I was my mother was a Danish teacher. And so she had a whole library of literature and I sat under the table or in the chair at the nights mm-hmm. because I couldn't sleep and read all her books. Um I studied French in France, not in mm-hmm. school. I mm-hmm. learned English in the summer vacation with my sister because we took it as a challenge. Yeah. Just let's learn to speak English. And, right. and so we did. <laughs> and uh, I, I had a few inspiring teachers for short times of my years in school where I remember I actually learned something while mm-hmm. being in the school setting. Right. Otherwise, I learned because I was cheating. 
I was mm. not paying attention to what was going on in the school because I had a book under the table reading something that actually interested right. me. Right, not unheard of. <laughs> but I got all these A's and, you know, they were so impressed, but yeah. it, it was just right. a waste of time. It really it was. Way, yeah, and, you know, because, you know, if someone wants to learn something, like now I want to learn <laughs> Spanish, you know, so I'm doing Duolingo on my own, you know? <laughs> and it's like, no one's forcing me, you know, and I have a reason. You know, I'd like to perform some for magic for inner city children. You know, most of them speak Spanish. I was like, you know, that, that, you know, something I could do with my life. So, yeah. <laughs> why not? Spanish is fun. I learned Spanish a few years ago. It's a fun language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, but again, like I have mandatory Spanish. I don't remember any of it. And I passed. <laughs> Same thing with Latin. I had to take Latin when I was in uh, uh, high school. Right. <laughs> Although I appreciate it. I mean, my brother Philip was a Latin major in college. So, you know, I, I appreciate the Latin language. That doesn't mean I have to speak it and study it. <laughs> you know, I appreciate German and Danish, but they're not on my list to learn. <laughs> I'm happy there are doctors around, but I'm not a doctor. We don't have exactly. to all be able to do everything. Yeah. Right, right. But we think, at least in the States, that everyone has to go to college in order to be somebody. Otherwise, you know, and the thing That's is so weird, you know, why are we not somebody just, you know, right. Well, we are. And, and, and the thing is when I revised teach your own in 2021, so this is going back to uh, almost uh, two years now, I found that the federal reserve bank of New York noted that 43% of college graduates are doing work that does not require a college degree. Yes. 43%. Why, you know, why go through that expense and trouble and, and mental anguish, you know, and you're going to wind up like I did, you know, the master's degree, working in a bookstore, running a cash register and stocking books. Well, that would be because you want your college degree. If right. you're having fun and you should. Then I think you should do it. Yes, and, absolutely. The problem is the motivation and the problem is who decides. Yes. The person yeah. really wants to go to college because that's where all the fun is and they want to read all the books. And that's just so very interesting. Right. Go ahead, knock yourself out. I had 10 wonderful years at university. I loved it. It was mm -hmm. amazing because mm -hmm. there was actually professors around who knew what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. And I was reading real books in loads of languages. And it was very, very interesting. I had a lot of fun. I never used my education ever to get a job, but I had a lot of fun and found it very interesting. Yeah. And I think everyone should go do it. I would like another university degree just for fun. Yeah. But, but to do it to that. be someone or to do it because someone else think you have to, or that's a waste of time. It yeah. really is. Yeah. But Pat, uh, I'm actually glad you ended up with a college degree that ended uh, made you stand in a bookstore. <laughs> I know, uh, the way life goes, right? <laughs> yeah, because that bookstore have have uh, led led uh, many many people to help uh, uh, getting on schooling. Right. And That's and right. I'm looking a little at the time. We try to keep our podcast to around mm -hmm. an hour, um, mm -hmm. but. We have so much more to talk about. Just one they, thing. I, yeah, yeah right. please, please go ahead. One thing I want to add, because, you know, Cecilia, something you said just, just triggered it. It's like, yeah, if you want to go to college to study like oceanography or marine biology, 
Definitely. But let's not think that that's the only way to study those topics. You know, so of course, you know, I'll never forget this. There's a, I, I had it somewhere here. Is there, I, oh, here it is. This is the 30th anniversary edition of the Teenage Liberation Handbook. Uh, Grace Llewellyn wrote this in 1991. And she used a lot of material from Growing Without Schooling. It's, it's, all, it's still in here. And it's, it, this is a great book. It's, you know, I just love this book. But one of the things that, and I don't think this is in the book, but she said this in a talk that when, when, her, when the first edition came out, she came to Boston and she gave a, a wonderful talk. And, and I really remember this. She said, she read in Growing Without Schooling that um, a, 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 a daughter asked her dad, I want to become a marine biologist. You know, you know I mean, no, no I, I, want, I, I, I want to work with, sea, with the ocean and sea animals. And so he said, oh, well, then you're going to have to become a marine biologist. And, you know, that's that education thinking going, right? Yes, it is. And yeah. while Grace said, well, what, what about like all the other ways that, that you could study, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you, you could, you know, you could study whale songs. If you're into music, you could, you know, study, study the, the mu musicality. If you're an mm -hmm. artist, you could be drawing the animals. You could be drawing the seascapes. You know, if, if you know, if, if there, there are so many different ways of approaching marine biology. It just doesn't have to be from an academic point of view. You can work for the Cousteau Society. You don't need a college degree to do that. But what all these things do is they may lead you to a college degree because that may be the next step, you know? But we, we, we put all these obstacles in front of people to do jobs, you know, that are based on very arbitrary credentials. You know, I mean, to me, you know, I mean, the only fair way that, that this would ever work out, you know, in terms of like, oh, I've, I, I can, I'm qualified to do a job, is that you actually have a test at the job, like, you know, six weeks where you try to sell cars, and then, then they hire or fire you up to, you know, or if you're, you're a scientist or something, you're, 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 you've got to work on a project with, with certain people for three times or, you know, three weeks or something, and see how you, you gel and, and, and so on. Instead, we just use college degrees as proxies, you know, yeah. you say, oh, you got a college degree in science. Great. You'll make a great scientist. Well, you know. <laughs> but that was what I was trying to say, that my 10 years at university, I enjoyed the studying in and of itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I liked it. And yeah. I knew when I started, I want to be here because I want to read these books. Not mm -hmm. because I want to do what I can do afterwards with the right, degree. Right. It's not a means to an end. So yes. if you want to study marine bi biology because you're really interested yeah. in studying marine biology, not working by with the ocean, then mm -hmm. go study marine biology. I think it, right. I mean, I really recommend, I'm not against education. I think it was wonderful and I would like another university degree. I, I think it was amazing. I just think we have to do it because we like doing it because that's what lights the fire in the morning. Yeah. We do mm -hmm. it as means to an end that's kind of wobbly. We don't really even right. know why we're doing right. it or right. what are we going to do with it afterwards. Then it's yeah, it's a lot of time and money to spend. That's right. That's right. Or something yeah, we might use. Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot about like the way we structured university life that that that's you know worthwhile and that people want. Um, I don't know if this is a trend in in Europe, but um, in America. 
they're putting a lot of retirement, not a lot, but there are retirement communities being built near colleges or built by the colleges so that they could take advantage of like these lectures and, and, and social gatherings about you know, intellectual topics and whatnot. You know, those people do. I mean, you know, if we don't turn them off to education, <laughs> you know, it's a lifelong thing, you know, but we spend so much time turning it into a uh, do as I say, sit down, shut up and do as I say sort of. Practice. I don't know how it's going with your and we, you. And we're using the first 10 years to to turn people off before they are free to enjoy the education at right. the university. Well, as Illich wrote uh, back in the 70s, he said, you know, school is set up to pre-alienate children for office work. <laughs> so they'll be used to it. That's what ready, yeah. <laughs> okay, but, maybe we ended on that laugh. Yeah, but and but uh, we, we should definitely talk again, Pat, where we talk... Oh, yeah. On, on, on schooling, it was wonderful to hear your your road uh, onto onto the where you ended up with unschooling. For mm-hmm. people who want to know more about growing without schooling and, and your own work, where should they go? Where will they find uh, find your work? Uh, on my website, uh, www.johnholtgws.com. GWS is the initials for the magazine Growing Without Schooling that John started and that I continued after he passed away. He published it from 77 to 85, and I published it from mid-85 to 2001. So we did um, almost a little more than two times as many issues as John did. So there's, you know, to me, that's another thing. Like John died, but the work grew and carried on. So as another thing I said, we're, this is important beyond just, you know, <laughs> this this idea of, you know, yeah. selling a book. <laughs> it's still one of the first persons people talk about once you mention i might want to homeschool read john holt uh-huh. yeah. yeah now i would say to him, go meet real people yeah go yeah, meet real people. I, that's my yeah i mean if you can't if, if there's no real people in your life yeah, then, then reading jump but you know gosh there, you know I, i know teen lip is a good book there's a lot of there's a lot of good books i, I i've only read part of it but um gosh i can't think of the title right now but Gina Riley has a book about the joy of unschooling, and she just interviews families to talk about what makes unschooling a happy event for them. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. <laughs> But that could be okay. one of the topic for our next talk, all the great books on the subject out there so people know what to look for. But now yeah. we should end. It was we wonderful to uh, yes. see you again. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, enjoy Sicily. Why? I've never been there. I've been to Rome twice. I, you know, but uh, never been to never Sicily. Too late. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, well, I'm make it. I'll wait a month or two. It's quite cold in Sicily at the moment. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's pretty cold here. I would believe <laughs> April would be a good time to but, go. But but we are learning the culture in deep because the the place we have rented there's a pizza oven. So we are. Uh, hey, there you go. You're learning <laughs> it, uh, the good way. Sicilian pizza. Oh. <laughs> okay, thanks. Take care. Good seeing you. Bye, guys. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you liked it, then please share it with all your friends and family. We would also love it if you gave our podcast a review. Thanks.
And if you want to support our podcast and work, then you can find us on patreon.com slash the Conrad family. We will continue to travel full time. And if you want to tag along, then please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Conrad family. And you can also read more than 100 blog posts on our website, theconrad.family. Until next time, make a wonderful day. Thank you.